0: This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit VUSustainableEngineering.com.
1: From GreenViz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Climatech's starring role at Earth Week, companies get on board for sustainable aviation fuels, why rainforest advocates are seeing red, and when electrification meets circularity. We're running off to join the circuits this week on 350. It's April 30th, 2021. Another month has disappeared. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, direct from her blooming garden, is Green Biz Vice President and Editorial Director Heather Clancy.
0: Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How is your uh, day going?
1: It's been a week.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you know, it, this is—it's been
1: a week after last week, which was absolutely a week. And I'm looking forward to the month of May, simply because it's not going to be as crazy as April and March, <laughs> and dare I say February and January. I'm looking forward to having a little more spaciousness and time, and I uh, have a lot of things I want to do, uh, and so that's my plan. How about you?
0: I am looking forward to May too because my garden blooms, as you mentioned at the beginning. (laughs) I actually have some really good, apparently deer-proof things growing in my my, uh, yard right now. So I put some new bulbs in this year and I'm happy so far to say that my resident uh, deer have not eaten them yet. So um, that makes me happy and uh, yeah, I'm uh, fully vaccinated too. That's another reason to be happy.
1: That's definitely a reason to be happy. What's going to happen in the near term as a result of that?
0: In the near term, I get to see some dear friends, no pun intended, Yeah, really. in Virginia Beach. And I'll also be hitting Delaware and uh, Maryland. So get to do a little eastern shore. And so yeah, I'm looking forward to a little bit of vacay in May.
1: Oh, that sounds like a lovely journey. But you know what, let's take a journey back in time to do the week in review. So Heather, you covered Earth Week last week's uh, <laughs> many, many events. Uh, really lovely uh, in, a, in a piece on 10 Earth Week developments that bode well for climate tech. Um, there was a lot going on, certainly the President's Summit, but uh, other things as well. Uh, do tell.
0: Do tell. So I knew that we would have oodles and oodles of digital copy uh, and ink spilled over the, the climate uh, summit that was convened by the White House uh, last week. And I've decided to take a little bit different take and kind of look at what happened on the peripheries, um, the announcements and so forth that came out. And there were quite a few um, that all sort of built on the theme. one of the big themes at the summit, which was the need for innovation and the need for innovation across a lot of different sectors. Um, when Jennifer Grandholm, the, the Secretary of Energy, ran her section of it, there, there were quite a few private sector folks that were represented, including Bill Gates, who talked about uh, mission innovation and the clean energy breakthroughs that he's been really highlighting with the, the publication of his new book. Uh, but you know, there were a lot of different programs that came out. I, I, I'll mention a couple, and then maybe I'm curious to see if you if any caught your attention in particular, Joel. But, uh, you know, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but one of the things that, that came out of last week was a new initiative called the LEAF Coalition, aka Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance. And it was uh, the, the U.S. along with the U.K. and Norway. But uh, a bunch of, of companies um, have jumped on board as well. Airbnb, Amazon, Amazon. Unilever, Salesforce, Nestle—these, the, 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 idea is that uh, that we need at least one billion dollars this year in forest restoration financing. So that was a, a new effort with some actual money put towards it. Uh, let's see. Another thing that I thought was particularly interesting was uh, that there's a new agricultural initiative, Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate. Um, the U.S. and the United Arab Emirates focused on sort of the ag tech that we'll need uh, to, to put new, uh, put new life and, 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 and innovation into the food system. So, yeah, lots of lots of different uh, initiatives. I'm just curious what t- caught your attention.
1: Well, these are good ones. I mean, I'm curious about the Leaf Coalition. Uh, somebody worked a little bit overtime on that acronym. It should be two Fs lowering <laughs> emissions by accelerating I forest finance. Um, yeah, is this the money mechanism for the Trillion Trees Initiative, or how do these things uh, line up?
0: It's partly that, but yes, um, and I think it's, it's also partly a recognition that the developed developed nations, the nations that have benefited from creating so many emissions over over the last few decades that that they need to put more money into um, places that that require uh, restoration. So, yeah, I mean, part of it is 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 actually putting money against that claim. And uh, that was, again, a big theme that came out uh, that we need more money to go to places where that have been damaged um, and that need to. To be, you know, that deserve to have some investment because they can't put it. They can't all. They can't fix the problem themselves. Um. So, yeah.
1: Well, the, lots of initiatives here that you that you write about that that look at at finance, of course, but uh, also uh, Alphabet's latest moonshot, the Global Power System Transformation Consortium, and talked about Bill Gates a little bit. Um. And and there was one or agriculture and even nuclear became part of the mix but there's a there's one on shipping industry mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. aviation mm-hmm. Uh, and and that brings us to another story that we ran this week from Mike DeSocio on uh, United Airlines this new partnership with uh, US companies to ramp up sustainable aviation fuels um, and and this is something that's been really after Years and years of, uh, of sitting on the tarmac, uh, sustainable aviation <laughs> seems to be heading down the runway, if not yet taking off. Um, we've talked about this in the past. And I've, I've written about this as well, uh, that these, these biofuels that can be made from ag waste and even municipal solid waste. I've been around for a while, but and some airlines are using them, But and there has been a, a flight, I think, a uh, test flight that went entirely on sustainable aviation fuels. But most flights, uh, United, for example, all of its flights out of LAX has less than 1%, maybe it's even a fraction of 1% of a sustainable aviation fuel, a teacup in an ocean, basically. But what's happening now is really interesting, and this is what... Uh, Mike wrote about this week, uh, are a couple of different consortium of airlines and fuel companies working directly with companies to get them to commit to sustainable aviation fuels. They're basically ripping a page out of the Renewable Energy Playbook, where, where the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance um, uh, and some other initiatives came together to get companies to commit to certain procurement of renewable energy and that helps uh investment that helps uh create a sustained orderly market that we need to ramp these things up and in the case of of sustainable aviation fuels it's been a supply demand problem where the the each points to the other well this we would we would create more supply if there was more demand and they say well there's not enough demand not enough supply for us to even want this stuff (laughs) so here comes united airlines with its eco skies alliance which Brings together uh, more than a dozen companies, Nike, HP, Deloitte, Siemens, uh, and some others, uh, that who are committing to collectively purchase uh, sustainable aviation fuels to support their employees' business travel, uh, enough to power 220 million uh, miles of passenger flights. I assume those are passenger miles, uh, not necessarily mm-hmm. airline miles, Um and uh, eliminate 31,000 metric tons of greenhouse gases. And this is actually the second um, program launched last week. Uh, another one, the Rocky Mountain Institute and the Environmental Defense Fund launched uh, SABA, the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance, again, mm-hmm. taking a page directly from the REBA playbook. And this brings together Boeing and uh, Deloitte and J.P. Morgan Chase, Microsoft, Netflix, Salesforce, companies that do uh, lots and lots and lots of, of, of employee travel. And the idea is, is uh, similar to accelerate the path to net zero aviation by driving investment in high quality SAF, sustainable aviation fuels. This is really... Very exciting. This is one of those log jams that we've been waiting to break and and to let the investments fly and let the procurement come in and then ultimately have the supply and demand uh, ramp up as they did with renewable energy.
0: Yeah, I like this because it's a very specific type of offset that these these organizations are going to be able to buy, as we know. Companies have been making so many claims and they need to be specifically investing in projects that will offset those claims if they can't do, you know, something directly themselves. And this is just a, a wonderful way of spurring innovation and giving the the fuel, if you will, to those to the innovation, to, to the sustainable aviation fuel industry to make, you know, to get the, the economics there, to to really specifically address Um, you know, a a very important part of many companies' footprints, which is business travel, right? And we have last year, 2020, of course, was a completely unprecedented year for that. (laughs) You know, it went away. But now that companies are starting to think about the future of work and what it looks like, they're, they're also starting to look at business travel again and getting creative about how to to handle it and to 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 address it. I think I, I want to give props because I believe Alaska actually had a, a, a partnership it announced with Microsoft maybe last October that that does something similar where you know they're going to be buying fuel. Microsoft's going to be buying certain certain flights, essentially, um, and they're working together on that. So I think more of the airlines are going to be doing this. The United Alliance is big in, in that it's got a lot of companies involved, but I think one of the things that many organizations are going to have to think about uh, is is the different sorts of travel in the future. I mean, if you think about how how an organization might look in the future, if 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 it goes completely hybrid or completely remote, and um, you know, let's just say that they're in 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 the past, a company had a headquarters in Oakland, let's just say, Oakland, <laughs> California, and many of its employees. Used to be on site, but then moved away. Um, but would then have to fly in for certain meetings. So you actually might be a bigger travel footprint um, associated with some future work arrangements than than exists now with with everyone in a whole in a in a you know a, a headquarters location. This may be driving if you look at the 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 aviation footprint versus a, a a footprint for public transit, for example, in a in a in an urban center. So. I think it's a, a great idea and something that many companies are going to have to be thinking about as, they, as we exit the pandemic.
1: One of many things that companies will be thinking about post-pandemic, but you, uh, let's stay in the renewable energy uh, realm and fly over to another story, um, <laughs> uh, Circular Approach to Electrification and Renewable Energy, written by Lauren Phipps. GreenBiz's own director and senior analyst for circular economy and chair of the of circularity 21 coming up in June. This is about the sort of backside of uh, on solar and what happens to these panels because uh, a lot of them uh, solar has been around long enough that we're, we're reaching the uh, 20 or 25 year uh, lifespan of the, of these panels and what happens then. We didn't really have a plan for that in terms of the recycling or the materialization or refurbishing or reuse or, or whatever the, wherever it wants to go. And these things are not benign in terms of the materials that they contain. And so, Lauren uh, talked to National Renewable Energy Lab uh, sustainability analyst named Taylor Curtis, uh, who focuses on. Uh, the regulatory structures in the U.S. that affect recycling, reuse, and repair of specifically solar modules, panels, and what's called balance of system, all the other things such as inverters that go into a solar system. and wrote a report recently that addresses uh, what it will take to create a more circular approach to solar photovoltaic system materials and uh, really interesting insight into something that, frankly, we hadn't thought much about.
0: Exactly. And it's just, it's a huge problem at uh, one of the, some of the numbers in this story are pretty, pretty sobering. One of the statistics in particular for recycling solar, solar modules, it costs anywhere from $15 to $45 per module. When you can dispose of them for as cheap as $1 a piece in some of the landfills. So the Economic proposition um, of of figuring out how to recycle these things is pretty daunting. So, you know, the other thing I've been thinking about you mentioned sort of the these things are coming end of life, right? Like many of the the, the installations have been out there long enough for this to be a concern. You know, what happens when they fail? What happens when we need to upgrade them? And I think this is a, another area that renewable energy buyers from on, from the corporate side need to start thinking about as they sign these power purchase agreements for, uh, and wind, probably, it, I'm sure it applies to wind too, but let's stick with solar for a moment. But as you assign a solar PPA, what's going to happen to that technology when it does need to be upgraded or to be maintained or to turned over and so forth? And I think that that's another way that Corporate uh, energy buyers could make their mark on on a on an industry and on a on a habit, right? So, if you think about the REBA Alliance, Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance that we were talking about a moment ago, what if, in their principles, they started thinking about what happens to these things at the end of life? And if if you're signing a, a an agreement for a project, build that into it to it, making sure that there is a a, a process that the or maybe that you're you're specifying that they include modules that that are constructed in this way this could be another way for uh you know if you think about the Biden summit again uh, one of his big focuses is is bringing manufacturing back to the United States so what if the the domestic manufacturers focused on this as a dif- point of differentiation that could be really a very compelling value proposition
1: yeah i love that heather the, uh, you know, that is should be the next big thing in renewable energy procurement is is thinking about the entire life cycle of the equipment it takes to deliver those electrons. All right now, all we do is focus on the electrons. I need so many mm-hmm. uh, kilowatt hours or megawatt hours uh, of power over a certain period of time, and and this definitely feels uh, like the the next leadership quality. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, who steps up on that. Um, but yep. as always, you know this creates. Uh, and this is what's what's I think always the part of the climate tech and the clean economy that that we uh, always look for. And this is what's the opportunity here. Um, Apple has, has paved the way with uh, dematerializing iPhones and other equipment through its uh, Liam and Daisy and this whole series of, of robots that can take apart a, a, a device in uh, pretty much no time at all and, and capture it down to the screws and and metals, precious metals and things. Uh, will we be start to create some kind of uh, mechanized system for that? Will it be an entirely uh, labor-intensive thing, which isn't necessarily bad if we can uh, get the pricing right on that? And then, how will this affect the price of, of solar panels? Um, will that, you know, right now when you, in I think in throughout the United States, if you buy a, a, a car battery or tires for your for your car you you're also at the time you of purchase you have to pay a fee for the disposal mm-hmm. of that device yep. later on or for the one you bought yep. before that you're getting rid of you know does that start to get baked into the product price and or the price of the service that it's delivering the power purchase agreement as you said and and then what are the jobs that are created out of that what are the technology innovations um, that's always the exciting part there's lots and lots of opportunities to take on these it's a seemingly overwhelming environmental challenges.
0: Johnson Controls is one of the largest makers of technologies focused on smarter, more energy efficient buildings. Its latest batch of commitments, which have been approved by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, include a pledge to reduce its customers' emissions by 16% in absolute terms by 2030. Here to chat about that new agenda and other topical climate issues is Katie McGinty, Vice President and Chief Sustainability, Government, and Regulatory Affairs Officer at Johnson Controls. Hello, Katie. Hello, Heather. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Let's start with some context. Summarize your recent commitments, you know, some of the high, high points that, you, that we really want to know about.
2: Sure. Well, we are thrilled to join the growing number of companies and organizations that are rising to this important, both challenge and I think huge opportunity to begin to turn the tides on climate. Uh, what we did was build on many years, 20 years of climate reporting of being an original member of the UN Global Compact, of driving our emissions down from an energy intensity point of view, which we've achieved about a 70% reduction, and turning that now into an end-to-end series of commitments that include absolute emission reductions in scopes one, two, and three, Uh, Moving beyond 2030 with our science-based targets at 55% operationally uh, and 16% absolute reductions in scope three, uh, looking out to 2040 and heading to net zero by 2040. So on the emissions side, taking those next big steps, kind of bolstering that inside the organization in a number of ways. Dedicating at least 75% of all of our R&D to climate and sustainability innovations, putting a gating function into all capital investments so that they do the same, and then driving it on home in the most serious way. And that is tying uh, the meeting of our sustainability and our diversity goals to executive compensation.
0: Mm ooh <laughs> that's a big complicated handful of things that you're doing but but it's actually important that it's it seems to be more of part of the strategic overall initiatives at the company. Uh, I'm curious you know given that right in the past we've seen people report on commitments with some regularity, although not always every year. I'm just wondering how these these new agendas require you to change that and how often will you be talking about them-
2: Well, we really have a all-in kind of process inside Johnson Controls. One of the things that I am most excited about is that the commitment that we're bringing forward is as much top-down in terms of from CEO on down, uh, totally seeing the imperative of action on climate, and frankly, the huge business opportunity you know for a company like ours that exists to try to make buildings more sustainable, you know, buildings being 40% of all global greenhouse gas emissions needing to get at that. But equally, and if not more exciting to me, um, is that every one of the commitments we've announced, we have also built bottom-up. Uh, so as Chief Sustainability Officer, I have um, overseen and been privileged to help bring to life a variety of working groups across the organizations that have grab the various pieces of what we have to do to to be marching towards net zero. And those working groups are both run by and peopled uh, by the engineers who conceive of and build our products, the data wizards that are building our open blue digitalization platform, and enabling all of our equipment and technology to be connected to each other, to the grid, and really magnify emission reduction. So that ownership, uh, one, is what has enabled us to have a solid line of sight in terms of what we can produce and when. But it also, Heather, has unleashed unbelievable enthusiasm across the company. The company is on fire in terms of this shared vision and energy.
0: Mm-hmm. How far down is that compensation um you know, mandate reach? Is that to managers down? Does that go back down into the, the, the general, the engineers, for example?
2: It, it reaches down to all of our senior um, leaders, uh, which is more than a hundred plus uh, colleagues directly affect it. And then each of those colleagues then um, are strongly encouraged to cascade those goals on down. And that is, the, uh, that is what we are seeing in the company You know, taking our diversity and inclusion goals just for a moment, uh, we are also thrilled to have uh, put out there a goal to be able to double the representation of women and minorities and leadership ranks in JATSA controls uh, within five years. And that goal, we gather uh, every month and keep track of our progress against goal and I'll tell you that's an all-in exercise because uh, everybody has a role to play inside Johnson Controls of making sure we are including um, the diverse spectrum of talent and and folks that we have in the company and finding opportunities for promotion for inclusion and for new hires that help us to be in touch you know with our customers and with society out there more broadly. So it's it's a top. kind of exercise
0: i'd like to ask about the customer related commitment right this and you know as we all know scope three or anything beyond scope one and two is super hard to to get at so how what's behind the customer related goal and how does your innovation initiative play into that
2: so One important thing, and as I think you were intimating, um, you know, scope three and avoided emissions, uh, a more challenging um, exercise uh, around the metrics of it, et cetera, uh, than the challenging exercises of scope one and two. Uh, But here's our approach. First, we have one unified um, yardstick and set of metrics that governs our approach to scope three To avoided emissions. And as you know, um, we were early um, in the green bond markets. And that same set of metrics, formulas, calculations is what uh, governs the um, emissions reductions and the environmental improvements from our green bond uh, proceeds, which we'll be reporting on um, in September. It will be our first report Uh, about the uh, positive impact that those investments have have made. Um, Second, there's a piece, uh, a significant piece of our dialing down our customer, which is uh, very straightforward. And I say that because it is tied with what we call our performance infrastructure business. That business is all about partnering with customers, owning their emissions and sustainability goals, um, shifting the risk of meeting those goals from them to us um, and only getting paid on our end as we meet those goals. So that's just direct, hard data. Uh, And as we look at that um, over the years, we've cut uh, there about 31 million metric tons of CO2 and have saved customers $6 billion in energy costs. Um, Expanding that aperture, the real uh, key tool for us will be digitalization is our OpenBlue platform where for example, sensors um, in uh, various parts of buildings can help us know, hey, there's nobody in that part of the building, no need to drive the HVAC filtration ventilation systems hard in that part of the building, uh, for example, or uh, enabling us to uh, to have connectivity between buildings and the grid. Uh, That is about a 50% enhancement on the emissions reductions and efficiency that can be achieved by our efficient pieces of operating equipment per se. So that's a second and key piece of it. And last, I would just say, Um, is that we have, uh, again, metrics and an approach to measuring the emissions and avoided emissions of our products that we we, we bring to third-party review and ensure our approach through that uh, third-party limited assurance.
0: Thank you for that update. You mentioned your bond, your green bond, and I know you plan more of them. So, what advice would you give to other corporate sustainability leaders about the process?
2: Well, I think it's uh, very important to have good partners. And we were very fortunate to partner with ING on the front end. Um, and they were, were terrific in working with us to structure our green finance framework. We added to that um, a second vital partner for us was Sustainalytics and they came in and reviewed our work and we were very pleased and honored to have received their highest rating, um, which they measure at lowest risk. And I think that's really very important to get the framework upfront um, right. When you do that, I think a second wonderful experience we had is we really took it on the road and we did quite a robust roadshow speaking to more than 150 investors. And we were proud of what we had to show because we had raised the bar quite high on ourselves in terms of what would uh, constitute, you know, green to benefit from our investments. So, for our basic equipment, for example, it wouldn't be good enough that it met efficiency standards, wouldn't be good enough that it was a little bit above. We set a bar for ourselves of at least 15% above any relevant standard uh, on lead certified buildings. Similarly, uh, that they had to be gold or platinum buildings to, to count. And the upshot of all of that was a terrific experience where our bond was nine times oversubscribed We brought uh, new investors to the table who uh, were enthusiastic about the story. Uh, And of course, it uh, drove down the rates that we had to pay. So great experience, but do the homework up front. Make sure you've got a really solid story to tell in terms of the high bar you've raised for yourself for the proceeds of that green bond investment.
0: One final question before we wrap up. Your CEO was one of the featured corporate speakers, business speakers, if you will, at the White House Climate Summit last week that uh, President Biden organized. What were your impressions from the event?
2: Well, a couple. Um, One, just to feel a sense of great gratitude to be experiencing this moment, this moment of hope and promise that we can uh, turn the corner uh, and 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 do not only what is right um, in terms of the climate challenge, but uh, to do that in a way that that lifts all of us up to 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 greater purpose. And I felt that po- incredibly positive energy, uh, even remotely, um, but felt that in terms of the commitment and the passion uh, that was uh, that was what was evident in the meeting. The other thing, I guess, adding to that is the diversity of players that were brought to the table. Uh, Terrific to see the vision and leadership of governments and the renewed leadership and vision of our government. Um, That coupled with, uh, for example, leaders in the financial world give me greater confidence than I have had maybe in at least 20 of the 30 years that I've been at this, that we're at a moment of stick and stay, that there is depth and breadth to the commitments, to the drive uh, that we're seeing that can and will help us to, to turn the corner. So I'm very hopeful and very grateful to be um, part of um, you know, witnessing and maybe even making a little contribution to this moment in time.
0: Thank you for your insights and your thoughts on that.
2: My pleasure. I I just couldn't be more pleased than to partner with uh, Green Biz. You all have made a huge difference in understanding long before many of us, the connections between things green um, and things finance and things technology. And I think a lot of the fruits of your work and insights are on display in terms of the uh, positive energy and trajectory of progress
0: right now. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> and really thank you for joining us on GreenBiz 350. You just heard from Katie McGinty, Vice President and Chief Sustainability, Government and Regulatory Affairs Officer at Johnson Controls. In late March, the Southwest Pacific nation of Papua New Guinea issued credits for more than 9 million verified metric tons of carbon reductions, representing the first time that nationally issued Red Forestry credits have been available to corporations and consumers. Shortly thereafter, the Canadian energy services company Blackstone became the first firm to buy some of those credits. Here to discuss the significance of this development is Kevin Conrad, executive director of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, a nonprofit established by tropical countries to help manage rainforests responsibly as part of their overall economic development plans. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, Heather. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, so let's start with a level set for our listeners. What is the coalition's unique role in the broader world of carbon offsets?
3: The, The coalition is a group of around... 50 to 55 developing countries that have forests, most of them rainforests and were are the group that introduced in 2005, the concept of red plus. So there have been in the past sort of forest projects, but this was red plus and the coalition has led the international negotiations on that since.
0: So why, what is, you know, talk to me about red plus. Why is that important?
3: So, as we looked at carbon emissions and the role of natural systems and climate, it became clear that tropical forests had to be part of global climate negotiations. And prior to 2005, they had not been. They were intentionally left out as too hard and not as important as reducing emissions from the brown or from, from fossil fuels. So as you look, you know, forests, as they're burned and destroyed, were about 20% of carbon emissions at that time, and they were intentionally left out. And at the same time, we all know from our basic biology classes that forests and, and plant life pull carbon out of the atmosphere and fix it in the soils. So to ignore a huge source of emissions and to ignore this great natural process of removal for us, we saw as foolish and and irresponsible, and that's why we introduced REDD+.
0: Why is the recent announcement by Papua New Guinea so important?
3: The importance here is that these are the first credits that have been approved by the Paris Agreement that are available for corporations. So these are the first Paris-compliant credits that are available to individuals and corporations. Now, Why is that important? And let me talk a little bit about what the Paris Agreement does in order to explain that. So the Paris Agreement is made up of all the countries in the world that have agreed to a process to reduce carbon emissions on a national scale and every five years to tighten their belts and push their collective emissions lower and lower with the goal to reach sort of global carbon neutrality by 2050. Now, why that's important is that most of the carbon credits, well, actually, all of the carbon credits that have been available heretofore are not consistent with that belt tightening process, meaning every five years, a group of carbon credits need to expire, and a new group of carbon credits will come as they are under an even tighter lid or ceiling Going forward, and there's nothing in the carbon markets today that operate in consistency with the Paris Agreement.
0: Now, and and as we know, the carbon markets voluntary mostly, right? Um, especially right now in places like the United States, they're far more active with all of these net zero commitments that many companies are making. And now we have a U.S. commitment of reducing emissions by half. Um, you know, and much more aggressive than than private, prior administration. What are we looking at? Why is this sort of Paris compliant scenario so important? And how does this set out set against the other offsets in the in the market? Like, do we need a lot of more of these sorts of credits out there?
3: Well, this this is an open question. So you know, as a company pursues its net zero plan going forward, and it operates in a country such as the United States that now has agreed to reduce emissions by 50% over the next nine years, how do you reconcile those two actions? And that's the big question. Um, you know, can Can a company buy credits that sort of are based on a reference level that goes flat for the next 30 years when the U.S., is now in a construct where it has to have 50% emission reductions in the next 9 years and that's why we're arguing that paris compliant credits that already come from that come out of that structure of regular belt tightening are the future that the voluntary credit regimes uh, are actually obsolete and we are now in a new world that that is specifically focused on keeping global climate temperatures below two degrees and hopefully uh, trying to settle in at 1.5. And the only way that's going to occur is with every five years having carbon credits that are under a tighter construct than they were the five year five years previously. And the voluntary markets are just not consistent and compatible with that reality. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you feel like, uh, needs to happen as far as the markets go. I mean, are you anticipating a price? I'm going to just throw it out there, a price on carbon. Would that would that help this, this scenario?
3: Pricing carbon accurately and effectively is one of the most important pieces of this puzzle. Um, pricing has to be looked at in the context of the opportunity costs. So Let me just give you a four example, and I'll use Papua New Guinea as that example. If you look at the incomes that Papua New Guinea makes from logging, and that is taxes, jobs, etc., if the carbon price can't overcome those opportunity costs, it's going to become, it is going to be ineffective. The government's going to sit there and say, "Look, um, we're making more income from logging than we are from." At the carbon value of not logging, but as a poor developing country, we have no choice. And it's unequitable for us to stop doing something that is providing jobs and health and education. So the carbon price has to be dealing directly with those opportunity costs or it won't work. And so that's why um, we are very supportive of carbon pricing, but carbon pricing that is based on reality, not arbitrary prices that are out there that are not including all of the opportunity costs associated with each driver.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what challenges did Papua New Guinea face getting to this milestone? So they're the first, probably took them a long time. I don't know exactly how long, but what what did they face getting there?
3: You know, that this is something that a lot of corporations don't understand, and that is how arduous and robust the Paris Agreement process is. So I'll do this very quickly, but every 2 years Papua New Guinea has to prepare a nationwide greenhouse gas inventory report. So this is every this is every ton of carbon that is emitted in every sector nationwide. So it's not about a project, it's not about a buffer, it's about every carbon ton. So PNG has to prepare that report. Then it's required to prepare a national plan that says, well, how are we going to reduce those emissions? That report goes also to the U.N. uh, climate. Uh, That that report also goes to the U.N. climate convention. It then has to the third element is it has to create a reference case for, you know, how it what are those emissions historically and what are they going to be in the future? So that's the third element the fourth then is it has to in a in the future present its performance so how is it done versus how it was doing in the past and it gets credit for those tons that are reduced under that national reference level and so it's a it's a very arduous process it you know that is independently reviewed the 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 UNFCCC uh, UN assigns two experts one from an independent wealthy country and one from an independent poor country. They pour over all that information. They pour over your greenhouse gas inventory. They pour over how you constructed your reference level. And they analyze thoroughly how you are claiming success or results against that. And they write out a report that that critiques every country and asks every country to improve. And only when they're happy with the improvements will they publish those credits on the UNFCC website, and as we sit today, there are about nine billion tons of credits that have come through the Red plus process under the UNFCC, and of those, PNG has about nine million that have made it through that arduous and time consuming process which which takes in fact a matter of two to three years: so
0: lots sitting out there. <laughs> Are there other countries (laughs) that are close to making a a similar achievement?
3: Um, So far, there's about six or seven countries that have already done this. So Brazil is one of those prior to President Bolsonaro. You have uh, Paraguay, uh, Colombia, Malaysia, Papua New Guinea. But yeah, there's, there's six or seven countries that have done this. And there's probably, I think at our last tally, about 45 other countries that are somewhere in that process I described to you, meaning in the next year or two, they'll be presenting their results as well.
0: So lots sitting out there, as I mentioned before. So what can we expect next?
3: The idea is that developing countries, rather than pointing fingers at wealthy countries for causing this problem, are trying to contribute and these are these nationally determined contributions or NDCs, they're trying to contribute to the solution by making emission reductions. The idea is that they will create supply and then corporations that are trying also to become net zero, but realize they can't do that either in a year or two, that's where the partnership is. So if you wanna be net zero and you wanna be part of the global carbon accounting system, you have to buy credits that come out of the Paris Agreement. Voluntary credits just fail. They fail on a lot of atmospheric standards, but they also fail that they're not included in these national greenhouse gas inventories and the global accounting system. So net zero companies need to be buying Paris Agreement credits if they want their efforts to be part of the global accounting system. Now, that's one part of the process, but many companies such as Microsoft are saying we want to go back in time and be uh, sort of climate positive from our inception or going backwards. And that's where they can also buy vintages that are backwards because many countries are creating credits starting from about 2015 and going forward. So we can buy credits back in time as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So with the new U S commitments, um, to take climate action. Do you see the markets changing in it? I mean, what, how will this affect what you're doing? And do um, you see things accelerating, I suppose?
3: Yes, I do. I, it's not a coincidence that the Biden administration first published a report on the social costs of carbon. And as the US tries to execute against this nationally determined contribution, which is 50% reductions in the next nine years, the two have to converge. In order to implement the US NDC. carbon pricing is going to have to be a part of that. And it's going to have to be carbon pricing that is real and based on the actual economics of where it needs to reduce carbon emissions. So that's going to be a game changer.
0: One last thing for you, and it's a uh call to action what would you like the green biz community to do
3: what we're asking the green biz community to focus on is learning more about what the paris agreement actually is and how they can actually support the paris agreement it's not lip service but it's actually buying credits that have made it through the paris agreement rigorous process and are available for sale and Uh, can be part of any real serious net zero plan for any corporation. And we've got, we've got a lot of credits available and there's a lot of partnership here that is going to benefit communities. It's going to benefit the sort of habitats of the animals that live in the rainforest. (laughs) And it's going to benefit the, the development of countries as well.
0: Well, thanks, Kevin, for dropping by the podcast this week.
3: Heather, thank you so much. I, I, I hope that I was able to provide a little bit of light to your listeners. Uh, we're available to answer more questions. You're always free to drop by our websites, cfrn.org or red.plus.
0: You just heard from Kevin Conrad, Executive Director of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com newsletters and check those out. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350 until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus, visit VUSustainableEngineering.com.